Dear God, we're waiting here. We're waiting to hear. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's a day of test. We're testing this new mic, I guess, and I hope you hear me well. You do? That's perfect. That's perfect. But I have a little quiz for you. I know you guys do well on quizzes because you've proved it in the past. This one is going to be a little tougher. So let's see who's going to fail or who's not going to fail. I think it's going to be an easy one, but here it is. It's a serious question. Can you name one thing that we all as humans share in common? And it's more serious than we all have hair or stuff like that. Can you name one thing? I would say probably one experience that we all share in common as humans. I see your brains working, smoke's coming out. <clears throat> Here, here's what, I've, what I had in mind. Each one of us, each one of us without any exception whatsoever, has to face and deal with the big question of death. Big question of death. And as I say this, I'm sure that uh, each one of us has already had some very personal encounter, a close encounter with death. I'm sure that uh, you've been in a situation of a passing of a parent, passing of a child, a spouse, a friend, a relative, a neighbor that you are close to. And it's in those moments that we experience feelings that normally we would not experience, at least not with that intensity. What are those feelings that you have experienced when someone close to you passed away? I think, just to name a few, maybe you felt sad. Maybe you felt confused. Maybe you felt even depressed. Maybe disappointed. Maybe desperate or even angry. Facing the death of someone close to us or our own death is a time when I think God puts our faith to a challenge, to a test. And I think it's in some of those moments that you realize that your faith was maybe not as stronger as you thought. It's some of these moments where uh, you have those little split seconds where you actually ask yourself whether you believe in anything at all. Or it's in those moments sometimes that you realize that uh, the faith that you have is quite limited. And we're not alone. In the gospel story, there are two sisters that we're told about. Uh, those two sisters come in a very close encounter with death. But then they found themselves on this journey, a journey of triumph to unleashed faith. 
And we find their story recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. It is a longer story. It's one of the longer stories recorded in the Gospel of John. So I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to uh, uh, read a few verses here and there as I talk to you this morning. But here's how the story starts. There was a small village uh, called Bethany. Bethany. You may have heard that name. It was a small place, uh, we're told, uh, no more than two miles away from Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And in that village of Bethany lived two sisters. Those were Mary and Martha. Now, some of you may have read the story or heard about Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha found themselves in a delicate situation. Their brother, uh, their brother Lazarus, was sick. And so uh, they decided to send a message to Jesus and to let him know. Now, the two sisters and their brother were very good friends with Jesus and his students. And so that was the natural thing to do. And on top of that, Jesus uh, was at that moment in a very close area to Bethany and to Jerusalem. So did, they did the natural thing. They called for help. They probably expected that Jesus would hear the news and would get up and get on the road and get going and come to Bethany as soon as possible and do something about it. Uh, as you read the gospel story, you realize that uh, Jesus has done this many times before. He has healed many times people with various diseases, illnesses. He's restored the health of people before. As you read the gospel story, you probably would realize that uh, there is probably no place where Jesus would say no to someone who needed phys physical uh, restoration, restoration of health, uh, uh, health or healing. And you would expect the same thing to happen here. But here, somewhat surprisingly, Jesus does something different. And what it is, is that in fact, he does nothing. When he hears the news, he stays where he is, and he lingers for a while before doing anything about it. it in fact, the text tells us that he stayed at that place for two days. And finally, he tells his disciples that now is the time to go to Bethany and see what's going on there. You see, Jesus knows something before the disciples knew it. He knew something that the disciples were not aware of yet. And this was that Lazarus was already dead. It confused the disciples a little bit because uh, when he talked to them, they got the wrong idea. Jesus has a way of talking to people. It's a little bit peculiar. It's specific. As you read through the Gospels, you realize that a lot of times people come with a question to Jesus and then leave with two questions on top of their question. Uh, people don't get always the exact answers they want to get from Jesus. He engages them in a different way than the rabbis and teachers of that time would do. And here, something very similar happens. 
he tells the disciples that uh, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And of course, what they understand quite literally is that uh, Lazarus is sleeping. Now, that's a good idea when you're sick and you take some rest. Normally, I'm told by doctors and nurses that that can help you actually heal and get better. The disciples don't get it, but what Jesus is telling them is that he is asleep, which was just another way at the time to say that uh, someone has passed away. And so Jesus finally has to be very, very clear with them. I think he has to be very clear with some of us sometimes, but he clarifies for them and tells them straightforwardly, plainly. He says, well, guys, Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus makes that one very interesting statement. It's a statement that uh, I'm sure was pretty confusing for the disciples. But I got to admit, it's confusing to me as I read the story. Because this is not the thing you, ex you would expect him to say. He says, uh, he says to them, it's verse 14 and 15. He says, uh, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. And for your sake, I'm glad that I, that I was not there. So that you may believe. So that you may believe. It is hard to grasp what would be such a good thing for someone to actually die and you could help and you didn't even go. And that's the confusing part. But obviously, Jesus had something in mind that the disciples were not aware of. You see, you can never get ahead of God. Uh, let's do something different this morning. Why don't you turn to someone who's sitting right beside you and, and tell them, you can never get ahead of God. And here, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I know you remember this one. Here's what I mean. You cannot outsmart God. You cannot outrun Him. Wherever you go, He's already there. Uh, you don't know the words you're going to say, but the Word of God tells us that God knows our words before we even verbalize. Even rappers who are so fast in speaking don't realize that God knew exactly what they're going to be rapping about. You cannot outgive God because He has a lot more to offer. You can never get ahead of God. And so, with this in your mind, we follow the story as the group gets to Bethany. They finally get there, and they learn that things are even worse. Not only has Lazarus died, but he's already been buried for four days. Four days. You see, in the Jewish culture, their custom and their reality at the time, uh, they would bury the person on the day of death. The funeral would be on the same day. And that's understandable. Today, we have all the technology and the gadgets and all the logistics to, to preserve a human body in a dead shape uh, for days, for I guess like uh, weeks and even months or longer. But at the time, that wasn't possible. So they would bury the person on the same day. 
That in itself meant that Lazarus has probably died while the messenger from Mary and Martha was on his way to Jesus initially. If he had been dead and buried for four days and Jesus was lingering for two days uh, somewhere out there without coming, that adds up to around four days. I can only imagine the confusion in the disciples' minds. But I wish I could uh, see what the confusion for Mary and Martha was. I wonder if they expected a little more from Jesus. Just a little more from Jesus. Reminds me of that song, Just a Little Walk with Jesus. Wouldn't you feel disappointed with the wasted, with the missed opportunity? To have Jesus so close and for Jesus not to show up. For Jesus not to do what you expected him. You see, now Lazarus was dead. This was a done deal. And if you've been around someone who was dying, you know what that is. You know what it looks like to have the final look at each other. You know what it means for the person to say their last words that you'd always remember and that nothing else would come out of their mouth. The only thing that remains is memories. But we all know that once those eyes are closed and that heart stops beating, there's no turning back. It's a tough reality to swallow. That's where Mary and Martha were. They were left with one thing to do, and that was to grieve, to mourn. And that's what they did. The Jews at the time, they, they mourned, they grieved as they sat in the house. They wouldn't leave the house. And then relatives and friends would come over and spend some time and try to bring some comfort. And uh, they would grieve together with the family. The text tells us that a lot of the Jews actually came to console Mary and Martha. The grieving part started on the day of funeral. And then it continued for six more days, for a total of seven days. You see, it must have been very hard for Mary and Martha realize and to admit, to accept the fact that things didn't go quite as they expected them as far as Jesus was concerned. I think it's not easy for us when things in our lives don't go quite the way we think God should have them aligned and arranged for us. What is your reaction when you find yourselves in circumstances that are not quite what you expected God to do for you. God doesn't seem to perform the way you planned it, the way you thought would be best for you. See, you hoped for that new job and things were coming together, uh, but then something happened and uh, things didn't go through. You expected a good grade in school or pass an exam or some qualification for your job and you failed. Or you got a D instead of the A that you expected. 
you anticipate it to be healed, but then it's been a while since you've been praying for this, and folks from the church prayed for you, but you realize you keep running from one doctor to another, and you wonder, why isn't God performing? Your marriage, you hope that this would get in a better shape, but it's been a while, it's been lingering. You don't see much evidence for improvement, for change. Or you had that child that you were hoping that they would come back and get back on the right path with God, and it's been years since you've been praying for them, but you don't see any evidence for change. I can tell you what happens with me sometimes when I'm in situations, when I don't see God acting, performing the way I would love Him to. Sometimes I get confused. I think sometimes my faith is challenged. I'm wondering about how much I really believe. I wonder sometimes if God even hears my prayers. Anyone's been there? Sometimes I wonder if maybe God misunderstood what I wanted. Or maybe I misunderstood what God's will was. Sometimes I even worry that maybe I have sinned in a real bad way where that sin has distanced me from God. And now my circumstances might be the result of that. Remember that one time when I was desperately trying to apply to seminary. I knew I had a call from God. I knew I had to go. And things were starting to get on the right path. And everything seemed to be great. And then things got to a stop. Somehow there was an obstacle all the time I was trying to make the next step. And it made me wonder. I was wondering, what is this thing all about? Isn't you, God, that you called me? to go and to do things. Why isn't this happening? You see, in those moments we can despair, we can linger in our faith, unless we realize that God has something in mind, that what's happening is just not random. When Jesus and his disciples finally get there, it's Martha who goes and meets them first. They, in fact, they stay outside of the village of Bethany. And most probably, the text doesn't tell us that, but we assume that uh, they send a messenger who ran to the house of Mary and Martha to let them know Jesus and his folks are outside the village. And so uh, Jesus stays there most probably to avoid gathering a big crowd around him if people knew he were there, they'd get together and that would make a lot of noise. Just as a reminder, this is a time in the life of Jesus where the opposition against him is growing and growing and growing. It's actually dangerous for him to go and be in those areas of Bethany and Jerusalem. Those self-righteous religious leaders are trying to devise schemes to figure out how to get rid of Jesus, how to kill him. But Martha is the first who gets there. She goes there, she meets Jesus, and I think her reaction is so natural. What she says to him is, I believe what 
we would have said uh, the same thing. I would have said probably the exact same thing. But she turns to Jesus. And if you look at verse 21, Martha says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, in this brief address, this brief statement, Martha lets us know that she has faith in Jesus. That she believes that Jesus could have done something for Lazarus. He could have acted. He could have performed. Just as he had done it for so many other sick people in the past. Lazarus could have been healed and well at this time. You see, it's a very interesting twist in the story. As we realize that the way Martha is addressing Jesus is almost like instead of turning and staying in her grief and mourning, instead of limiting her own faith in what Jesus can do, then she's now facing him right there at that moment. And she seems to have this secret thought, that secret thought that she doesn't quite verbalize, a secret thought that ignites maybe a spark, a spark for a glimmer of hope that maybe, that maybe that's not all, that maybe that's not it. Maybe she's afraid of saying it. Maybe she's worried if this might not be outside of her comfort and if this may not be the wrong statement to make before Jesus. But she says to him also, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's almost like Martha is trying to break out of her own limitations and understanding of who God is and of her own faith limitation. We all have our notions about God. We have our definitions, our explanations of how God works and what God does. But there comes that moment in our lives when our current faith is challenged. And God wants us to come out of that current state, to look in front of ourselves with eyes bright open. Jesus turned to Martha and spoke back to her. He assured Martha that her brother will rise again. And that's one of those other confusing moments just in this story. Because Martha figured out, oh yeah, I know what Jesus is talking about. He means that one day, when the end of all human history comes, that when all people are raised and Lazarus will live again. They'll live again for eternity. But Jesus approached her right there with some words that have become one of the most popular words that we quote so often, especially within the gospel of John, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. 
And just so we can enjoy and understand this statement in its fullness, I want to take you on a little language trip. It's a very short one. But the resurrection and the life, as we read the statement, uh, that's what we focus on. And that's, that's a good, important part of the statement. But you see, what we would very easily miss is the first part. What Jesus says, he says, I am. I am. Now, if you took that back into the time before Jesus, which we call the Old Testament time, this is, in the Hebrew language, the way God identified himself as to who he is. When Moses and others were wondering, well, what's your name? What should I say to others about you? Who are you? How do I identify you? Just the way we do today. Well, I have this friend, and what's his name? Or this friend, what's her name? A name identifies in a way. And God told them a name that is, in fact, not quite such of a name. It's more a, a designation of the nature of God. He tell them, I am who I am. Or in the Hebrew language, that could be also, I will be who I'll be. And we've gotten that word, which... Technically, as scholars tell us, that nobody really knows how to pronounce because Jewish people would not pronounce the name of God. But by the name it's written in Hebrew, we assume it's Yahweh. And that's where we've gotten in the anglicized version of Jehovah. But all that means is I am who I am. So I hope you're starting to connect the dots. For Jesus to say, I am the resurrection and the life, doesn't mean simply that he is the resurrection and the life. But for him to make that I am statement is a claim. It's a reminder. In the, in the head of Martha and Mary and whoever may have been around, this is more than just saying, oh yeah, that's me. What it says to them is I am. And those Jewish people, they would recognize that immediately because I am is only a statement that God could make for them. Anybody who'd come and say I am would be considered as a heretic. They'd kill such a person because such a person would be claiming to have a divine nature, to be God or something like that. So he makes that statement. He says, I am the resurrection, and the life. And Jewish people had this expectation and knowledge that it's only God who can raise the dead, that only God has that power and that ability and that right to raise someone from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. What Jesus basically told Martha is, Martha, don't look back. Don't look back into your past and what I could have, should have, or would have done. Don't look into the future about what I would have done or should have done or uh, could do. I'm right here, standing in front of you. And I am, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, God may allow for our faith to be challenged so he can 
expand our spiritual horizons so He can solidify our faith. So He can help us stabilize our faith, make it more stable and durable. With this in mind, Martha runs back home and she quickly shares with Mary what's happened. And then, surprisingly, Mary gets up and runs out of the house. Everybody is quite shocked. She's not supposed to even get out of the house. So everybody who's gathered around her is wondering about it. They all get up and follow her. They initially think that she's going to the tomb of Lazarus, that maybe she is so emotional she wants to go and just sit there and kneel or whatever that is and pray there and, and keep grieving. And they all follow her until they all bumped into Jesus outside the village. And it's interesting because the story somewhat repeats itself now that Mary has the opportunity to talk to Jesus. She basically tells Jesus the same thing. She says, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But the text tells us further that uh, Jesus was deeply moved. In his spirit. And he was greatly troubled. These words describe very strong emotions. In the Greek language we're told that those are the strongest possible terms. And you see scholars wonder about this thing. Why was Jesus grieved? I remember in seminary uh, as part of one of my classes. We had an online forum that we participated in. Uh, the facilitator, uh, I guess the teacher's assistant or fellow uh, teacher, uh, asked that question. We went back and forth with all different possibilities. Why was Jesus so grieved? And something, it was because uh, he was grieved. He was very sad, deeply touched because of the human condition, because of sin, because of the power of death itself. Others think that it was because the crowds did not quite believe in him and, uh, and what he was able to do. That he was facing that opposition. Instead of people responding positively, they were responding negatively. Or could it be that he was also grieved because of Mary's and Martha's limited understanding and their limited faith? They did believe, they certainly believed that he could have done something for their brother while Lazarus was still alive. But now, in their limited faith and understanding, they probably saw death as a bigger issue than Jesus could actually deal with and handle. You see, God doesn't want you to stagnate and to remain where you are in your faith. He may allow for your faith to be challenged, to be tested in order to solidify it. Not only that, but He can provide signs and miracles 
to help expand our spiritual awareness and to unleash our faith. Those signs that I talked to you about are not signs on the road, but it's interesting because in the Gospel of John, this is how the Gospel writer describes some of those moments when Jesus performs a specific miracle of certain magnitudes. And those moments are not just for the sake of the miracle. They're not just for the sake of showing what Jesus is able to do, but they work as signs, as something that would indicate to people something. They work as a way for Jesus to reveal himself to them, a way for Jesus to strengthen and grow their faith. The more they see those signs, the more their faith is growing. And so here Jesus asks where Lazarus was buried. And then the text tells us again that at that moment he wept. Such a uh, popular, well-known verse from, from the Gospel of John. Jesus wept. You see, he knew exactly where Mary and Martha were in their lives. He knew exactly how they felt. He knew exactly what their hearts were going through. He wasn't surprised because he knows exactly how you feel when you are in the corner. God is not as a distant being that has no interest in you and in your life. He is the one who created you to be in a relationship with you. Him and you. And he knows your heart better than anybody around you. In fact, he knows your heart better than you yourself do. Sometimes we ourselves get confused about what we want and how we feel and where things are for us in life. But God knows exactly what's going on. God loves you. He feels for you when you're struggling and you're suffering. He knows exactly what it is when you go to tough moments and when you're in a tough place in life. He knows what it means to be limited in your faith. He knows what it means to feel hopeless. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us there. They finally get to the tomb of Lazarus. And then Jesus asks for the people to remove that stone that is covering the cave. At the time, you could bury a person in some sort of a cave in a, in a rock. And they would use a, a big stone to cover the opening so it could protect the body from animals or from thieves. And so it was a custom. They put the stone, and the stone was already there for four days. And... I don't know how this sounds to you, but it was a bad idea. Maybe people expected that Jesus would go there and spend some time at the tomb, just as we do today. We'd go to the uh, cemetery and we'd spend some time and we think and maybe we pray and we'd bring flowers. And maybe people expected Jesus to do something just like that, but nothing more. And so when he asked them to remove that stone, Mary, uh, Martha, I should say, 
who was obviously creative and uh, she had some sense about things, uh, she realized that uh, this was a very uncomfortable situation. It was a little embarrassing. And I can see her whispering uh, to Jesus, reminding Jesus, well, Jesus, just a reminder, uh, this guy, my brother, Lazarus, he's been dead for four days. He's been buried for four days. There's no refrigeration around here. And guess what? We opened that tomb. Oh, my. That's not going to smell good. She's trying to redeem Jesus from the uncomfortable, little embarrassing situation, as if he didn't know it. It didn't seem to bother Jesus, though. He simply reminded Martha to believe. He reminded her to believe. And so that stone was taken away, was moved away. And I can see all these people, I mean, Mary and Martha probably right in front of Jesus and around the students of Jesus, the disciples, and all these relatives and friends and neighbors and maybe some more folks who learned that Jesus was around and they had just enough time to get to the tomb of Lazarus as well. I can almost see them there, you know, staring at Jesus, wondering, well, what's next? What else should we expect? And some probably thought he'd say some wise words or some teaching. And then what Jesus did, he lifted up his eyes and he prayed to the Father. He simply thanked God for hearing his prayer. And then he prayed that God would increase the faith of those around him. You see, a simple prayer will do. Let's do this exercise one more time today. You'll remember that. Turn to someone and say, a simple prayer will do. A simple prayer will do. You see, sometimes we find ourselves in situations that seem to be too tough, too difficult, too sophisticated, too complicated. And then we get the sense that for God to resolve anything, we got to we got to offer him like some sophisticated prayer. We should pray for hours or we should pray for years or we should uh, perform some prayer exercises. But Jesus gives us an example here. In fact, if you think about it, it's a very disproportionate example. His prayer was as simple as it could get and as short as it could get. And it's absolutely disproportionate to what's going to happen as a result. A simple prayer will do. It will. You see, Jesus not only expected Mary and Martha to believe and trust in God, but he offered them his own example of trust in the Father. But Jesus didn't even stop there. He was ready 
to unleash their faith in a whole new way. His prayer was a preparation for action because at that point, he turned to the tomb and in a loud voice, he said, Lazarus, come out. And again, I'm wondering what these people were thinking at that moment. Standing by Jesus, somebody probably thought this guy must be crazy. Lazarus has been dead for four days and he's in the tomb. I can see that neighbor thinking, I used to know him before, but man, I've never seen somebody come out of a tomb four days after they were dead. I can see an uncle or an aunt say, well, I don't know about this. I'm not quite sure. I'm wondering what's going on through Mary and Martha's minds. But as we read the story, we realize that Lazarus comes out walking with his hands and feet still wrapped in those linen strips, just the way they used to bury the people at that time. You see, this was one of the most extraordinary signs that Jesus performed. There was no doubt the culmination of his earthly ministry. Right after that, he is arrested and he is crucified. But for Mary and for Martha, this must have been a turning point in their own spiritual journey, a turning point in their understanding, their grasp of who Jesus is, a turning point for their faith. It must have been also a demonstration of God's power in such a way that would help them increase their faith and trust in God. This morning, I, I would like to invite you to think of some of these signs in your life that God has performed that have helped you grow in your faith and learn how to trust Him more and more. I want to encourage you as you continue on your spiritual journey to consider those moments even in the moments of adversity and struggle, even in the moments when your, test is, uh, your, your faith is tested, it's challenged, that you wouldn't waste the opportunity because God wants to increase your faith. He wants to deepen your trust in Him. And nothing is a coincidence. I think the biggest sign that we experience, even as we celebrate still the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the resurrection itself. As we continue celebrating Easter, uh, maybe it's a good thing to continue celebrating Easter, uh, not just on Easter Sunday and Easter week, but uh, after Easter until next Easter. I wish we could live in that sign from God, the resurrection itself, the culmination of all human history where death was conquered. It wasn't an obstacle that could hold God back from trying to do something. As we come together around the table, I'm going to have Andy join us here and lead us through this time of uh, communion. 
let us think again about the sacrifice and uh, resurrection as well. A lot of times I think we, we stop at what Jesus did on the cross and we almost forget that there was a Sunday. And that on Sunday morning everything changed. You see, friends, uh, the sacrifice on the cross would have meant nothing if Jesus did not rise from the dead would have been just a sacrifice. But now we have hope and we have life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen.